Welcome back to Cape Climate, where we talk to people doing great climate work on Cape Cod. I'm your host, Laura Parkin. Over the past few weeks, scientists from NOAA, from the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service, and others have been releasing their temperature reports for 2023. Spoiler alert, not good news. It was a record breaker by a lot. Raymond Jong and Keith Collins reported in the New York Times that 2023 also seems to have been among the warmest in 100,000 years, according to Carla Buentempo, the director of the Copernicus Climate Change Service. Dr. Buentempo said, quote, There were simply no cities, no books, agriculture, or domesticated animals on this planet the last time the temperature was so high. And as we know, Global warming provides energy or or fuel that results in heat waves, melting ice, rising seas, and bigger storms. And a couple of weeks before the numbers were released, we had another winter storm flooding in Provincetown, though very happily, it was not nearly as bad as it was the year ago. But with all this in mind, I thought it'd be a great time to talk to somebody about how Provincetown is preparing to deal with the effects of climate change. Tim Famulari, the director of the Community Development Department at the town of Provincetown, is the perfect person. Not only does he lead the resilience work, among many other things in Provincetown, but he also represents the town in several regional collaboratives, and he has deep knowledge and a broad perspective. Turns out, there's a lot happening in this space. It also turns out that 2024 is going to be a pivotal year in Provincetown's resilience work an important year for the community to engage. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim. Tim, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And Happy New Year. Same to you. So I am excited to hear what you're doing here in Provincetown and regionally. But I'd love to hear a bit about your background first, because you've done so many things. Sure. Yeah. My career has been anything but linear. Those are the best kind. (laughs) Exactly. They are. I'm very grateful for that. Yes. I started out, I got a degree in biology with a concentration in marine and freshwater biology. I grew up spending summers in Wellfleet as a child. I was wondering if you had a Cape Cod connection. (laughs) I did. I did. And I went to the University of New Hampshire. I, I... was in that field for a number of years uh, before I became the conservation agent for the city of Boston mm. at a, a pretty young age. It was uh, a great opportunity that came together when I was about 25, and it was an exciting time to be in the city. There was a lot of downtown development. The Central Artery Project was still going on, oh. so a lot of really fascinating engineering marvels that needed environmental permits. Dang. It was really uh, a great introduction to federal, state, and local permitting with respect to uh, the, those environmental regulations. So uh, I decided to go to law school, and I did pursue a legal career in commercial real estate and land use, uh, environmental law, uh, a little bit of design and construction. And did that interest come out of the regulatory experience? It did, exactly. And... From there, I was in private practice. I also worked for the Massachusetts Department of Transportation doing big air rights projects like construction projects over the Turnpike in Boston or oh, over the Central Artery like the Project. Star and, <laughs> like that. Like, and some of those projects are finally coming to fruition. They're very complicated. Oh, wow. But I realized that it wasn't quite what, what I felt my calling was. So back in uh, 2015, I moved to Cape Cod and started volunteering for the Center for Coastal Studies and got back into the environmental field. 
What was your first volunteer project? I worked on a habitat uh, study of Pleasant Bay in oh. Orleans and Chatham. Mm -hmm. And I also worked on some benthic invertebrate studies, uh, picking through little tiny uh, grains of sand for uh, very tiny organisms. Uh, and then at, at about the same time, you then started working for the town of Provincetown, right? Yes. I did work briefly for a salt marsh impact study yeah. between Delaware and Maine. I spent a summer doing that. That was great field work, basically recording elevations of salt marshes that were affected by Hurricane Sandy. And when I returned to the Cape after that, I was working on the right whale program at Center for Coastal Studies. I was a, an, an intern for that program and the job of environmental planner and conservation agent with the town opened up. Oh, nice. And it was a really good, it really utilized the multitude of skills. To find a, a, a job that utilizes all your skills full time on the outer gate is very special. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel very lucky. And then a year ago, you also took on the community development director role. So what's that been like? Yes. I was promoted to director of the community development department. So I oversee an umbrella department that includes the building department, planning, environmental planning, and conservation. Uh -huh. We have a great new hire. Her name is Melissa Millette, who took my former role, and she's leaping right into the coastal resilience work, which we'll get into. Uh -huh. But then I also oversee the Board of Health, the health department, licensing, code compliance, and housing. It's been very exciting. Has it's, it? Um, yeah, like I've, it? Re I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's fantastic. I wanted to talk to you about climate change and the effects in Provincetown. According to NOAA's November 2023 report, the global surface temperature was over two and a half degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average. And this November was the warmest November on record. Mm -hmm. And we are on the Cape already experiencing the effects of climate. So yes. when you think about Provincetown or the Outer Cape, what are the effects that you are most concerned about? Definitely sea level rise is number one. I think the second is related to that. It has to do with the warmth of, of the ocean around us. What that means is it exacerbates co coastal storms. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the background sea level rise, but also the the greater effect that coastal storms will ha are having on us. We don't usually get hit by Atlantic hurricanes, mm -hmm. but that's something I think we need to consider. Will warmer waters mean that we might get larger and stronger hurricanes like Hurricane Sandy. Nor'easters are becoming more powerful, both mm -hmm. in the extreme barometric pressure, it, which affects sea levels during a storm. Wind and wave action are really the number one, I'd say, in, in my mind. And that, of course, translates into flooding and erosion. What we really can't ignore is, outside of the abstract concept of climate change and sea level rise, is that it with it comes a lot of trauma. I think anyone who can see the destructive forces of nature in the past few storms and the economic pain, not only that, but really seeing your home damaged yeah. or destroyed is something that we need to really acknowledge as a community and well, work I mean, through that real the, human Yeah, I was just seeing element. the photographs of the flooded homes at also Fasim's restaurant. I mean, right. that right. was incredible yeah. to see that. But what an example of resilience. He had lost the dining room before. Yep. He installed breakaway walls and was able to get back in business about a month or two later. Those are the kinds of things we want to point to homeowners. What kinds okay. of things can you do if we're going to live with water and mm. fiercer storms? How can we, how can you adapt your property mm -hmm. to become more resilient? 
to that. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but essentially your listeners might be familiar with the term managed retreat and what Mm -hmm. that is uh, part of, it's an adaptation strategy where people Mm -hmm. move away from water. They move their homes, they build further away. Mm -hmm. We don't really have that luxury here. We have very Mm -hmm. small lots and 70% of the town is in the national seashore. Mm -hmm. So horizontal retreat isn't really a reality in Providence so it town. Has to it be... has to be a vertical retreat. Uh, where we, and that's, that is where we see that complication with what can private homeowners mm-hmm. afford. If people want to find out specifically how vulnerable their house is or their property, is there a map? Sure. Flooding? There are resources. Uh, one is uh, FEMA, which mm-hmm. draws flood maps for the entire United States. And those are pretty good for determining your first level of risk. Uh, It's not as uh, detailed and granular as some of the other data, which I can talk about, but that's really a good first place. And people talk about a 100-year storm, which is um, misleading. I think people talk about this, we had this storm, I'm safe for another X number of years. Gotcha. What a 100-year storm really means is the storm that has a 1% chance of occurring in any given year. Okay. So we might just be unlucky and get two of those 1% storms back to back. And of course, it's no longer one out of 100 years because you just described the changing of conditions. Correct. Correct. So should we understand that these one percenters are no longer one percent, but maybe given the current conditions, it's much more frequent. FEMA does have to update their maps on a regular basis. They have not since 2014, and I think oh. it's pretty obvious facts on the ground are changing. What is interesting is I would say that the pattern of flooding that we've been seeing in uh, January 2018, March 2018, December 2022 mm-hmm. are pretty consistent with what FEMA predicts. Oh, that's interesting. So even though their maps are old, their predictions are on. Seem to be on par. In 2016, now the town um, contracted with Woodard and Curran. Uh, They also happen to be the engineering consulting firm that runs our wastewater treatment facility, but they Mm -hmm. also do a lot of climate change planning and risk assessments. So we we contracted with them and with the Center for Coastal Studies. Mm -hmm. And the Center for Coastal Studies did what your listeners might be familiar with as a storm tide inundation pathway study. I think you've made that available online. Yes, that is available online. It's an infrastructure vulnerability risk assessment. Part of that is the study Mm -hmm. that the Center for Coastal Studies did. Woodard and Curran took those maps and overlaid them over our our, town infrastructure and essentially assessed what was most vulnerable. And those maps are even more specific. So the way that's structured, it's not this sort of vague 1% storm that actually looks at total water levels. So essentially, our high tides are generally around 9 or 10 feet. What you can do using this tool from the Center for Coastal Studies is see what happens if the tide is 11, 12, 13, 14 feet. Do you have predictions for three years from now, the average tides are going to be this much higher, and then 10 years from now this, or 20 years from now that? We do not. We are putting out an RFP for a coastal resilience plan that will take in all of this data and hopefully give us a better sense of those kinds of projections. And then when would you have some of the data to share with people? That's a good question. I would say it really depends on which consultant we select as far as what their We've, we've come up with certain parameters for what kind of public events we have. There needs to be some flexibility for mm-hmm. a consultant to work w- within, but we would expect the Coastal Resilience Plan to be 
in its final form in uh, a little over a year from now. What the purpose of the cultural resilience plan is to look, there are a couple of components to it, but one is to help the town plan capital projects mm -hmm. that will help make the town more resilient. But it's also to create toolkits for private homeowners. What makes Provincetown particularly complex is that we have uh, very small lots. We have a very mm -hmm. densely developed waterfront that's privately owned. So there are certain things that the town cannot do, mm -hmm. uh, raise people's seawalls because it, the, it's, it's not the property owned. of the town. So we're looking at neighborhood scale gotcha. efforts that the town can do and also developing toolkits. How can a private property owner help make their home and their property more resilient and help protect the properties of their neighbors? I think that's a really interesting uh, tension between having it be a community level problem, a, a regional global problem, but having so many of the actions depend on individuals. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a sense of who the players are and how people can engage, maybe participate in these meetings? Certainly. Or, yeah, I'd yeah. be happy to. About a little over a year ago, the town's Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee formed, mm -hmm. and the committee includes representatives of various boards and committees in the town that have some sort of nexus to concerns with climate change and coastal resilience. So it was a way to do something that was a more integrated look. Exactly. Planning mm -hmm. Board of Health, Conservation Commission, Harbor Committee, Historic District Commission. Yep. So the committee has been great and really instrumental in formulating the scope of work for the RFP. Mm -hmm. Every other month, they mm -hmm. will be hosting public forums. Mm -hmm. So those will be in addition to the public outreach we envision the consultant to be doing under okay. the Coastal Resilience Plan, but also just as a way to just another outlet for people to come and learn about what's going on and mm -hmm. ask questions and share their stories, which is really important. I would say in addition to the Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee, first of all, I'd say the select board is incredibly supportive and town meeting has been very supportive of our various capital projects that have come to the forefront. We also have some great regional partners. When I started as environmental planner in 2017, uh, I began meeting with m my counterparts in uh, Wellfleet, Truro, and East Ham. Mm -hmm. And we've developed, uh, not just in the climate space, I would add, but also uh, in the public health area, mm. sort of ways to collaborate and share resources. And we essentially formed a coalition and have been successful in getting a number of grants from the state's Coastal Zone Management Office oh, wow, to great. support intermunicipal shoreline planning because of our shared issues of erosion and coastal flooding. And we have been working again with the Center for Coastal Studies to develop those plans. Some of the things that are coming out of that are regional low-lying road plannings, mm -hmm. uh, pl plans for resilience, developing a regional sand bank. A lot of these projects, such as dune enhancement and beach nourishment, will require a lot of sand. Mm -hmm. So can we recognize, can we realize some sort of savings in developing a regional sand bank where we don't have to ship sand from off Cape to here? Is there a way for us to consolidate and store sand from other projects for use in coastal resilience projects? Had you been piloting something like that in Easttown? Provincetown and Easttown did. Part of the problem with Provincetown is that we have no space. The, the pilot was the Eversource battery storage project at the town transfer station. Mm -hmm. You don't have to dig very deep to get good, clean sand here in Provincetown. We're basically living on a sandbar. If anyone went to the transfer station, they probably saw how much earth moving mm -hmm. it involved. Gotcha. So 
We did some soil, some sediment analysis and realized that the sand was clean and good for use on a beach, but we had no place to put it. Mm -hmm. and, and we do have some projects in the pipeline for dune enhancement. So we were able to store about 3,000 cubic yards at the sand pit in East Ham for our future use. It's that kind of model that we're looking to develop for the regional sand banking. Gotcha. What other things are coming out of the collaboration? We also did a low-lying roads analysis. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for us to think about, to just look at our own borders. Mm -hmm. But I think if we're looking at something that might require a major evacuation or mm -hmm. a trip to the hospital in an ambulance during a flood event, mm -hmm. what other roads between here and the Rotary in Orleans could be inundated that mm -hmm. might hinder that? The study looked at different road segments that are critical evacuation pathways for the region. And in Provincetown, that included the stretch of uh, Commercial Street, Route 6A, uh -huh. from approximately the intersection of Snell Road to the Truro Town Line. Okay. So for some reason, Route 6 became inaccessible. That's our only other way out of town. So one of the recommendations was essentially to do a large beach nourishment and dune enhancement project there that would hold the water back from mm. flooding that, that stretch of road. The roadway in front of Harbor Hotel and the Breakwater mm -hmm. Motel typically gets a lot of splash over mm -hmm. during a storm and can be closed. How can we better protect that stretch of shoreline to improve our regional evacuation efforts if necessary? Another partner is the Cape Cod Commission. Mm -hmm. They applied for a regional grant for a number of Cape Cod towns to look at low-lying roads. And having that regional approach brought economies of scale where we could bring in a bigger engineering firm to look at. Mm -hmm. Provincetown's unique, complicated, historic district. Right. We had a public process and identified two low-lying road segments that we just couldn't, the town didn't have the wherewithal to look into. But mm -hmm. now that we've gone in with uh, a number of other communities, we've mm -hmm. been able to get uh, Woods Hole Group to take a look at some of those more complicated areas. And one of them is the area that was especially hardest hit during the December 2022 storm. And that's essentially from Howland Street uh, to Hancock Street, which mm -hmm. is approximately where Phoenixis is. Looking at that low-lying area and what, what could be done to mitigate flooding in that area within the town's, mm -hmm. the town property and maybe private ways if, if that comes down to it. And the other is around the West End parking lot that suffered some, they had some pretty significant losses in the January 2018 storm. Mm -hmm. And that area is of particular concern because it's, it's a little more remote. There are fewer cross streets to access that neighborhood in the event of an emergency. Uh, the DPW is also looking at elevating Province Lands Road mm -hmm. from the from the Provincetown Inn to the National Seashore Boundary, mm -hmm. ways to make that, that road, which is also an important ev evacuation route, mm -hmm. uh, more accessible during storms. Another partner I should mention is Cape Cod National Seashore. Yeah. We have a number of areas in, in the seashore that are important to the town that we really can't do anything about. But the seashore has been very receptive and has been putting in requests for federal funding to look at baiting the uh, culvert out on Province Lands Road, what mm -hmm. the seashore refers to as Moores Road, the the Hatches Harbor Dyke protecting the airport and Herring Cove uh, parking lot. It sounds like there are some great ideas and that you've identified some things that need addressing. Mm -hmm. What has to happen next? Essentially, it is bringing forward conceptual plans to the next stage of engineering where we can develop a cost analysis okay. and figure out what kind of a budget we would need for gotcha. the project. Mm -hmm. And then that gets incorporated into our capital improvement plan, mm -hmm. which comes to town meeting. And typically what we have to do is 
town meeting has to fully fund a project. Mm -hmm. And uh, grant funders from the state or from the federal government will want to see that the money is there. Mm -hmm. And then the, we establish the, the, the need to, for assistance um, to get it done. Federal government is, uh, FEMA grants are a little harder to get. Okay, uh, so th it's better to get from the state or the easier? The state's a little easier, yeah. And they've been very supportive of Provincetown. Coastal Zone Management has been a great partner oh, um, in great. our projects. That's yeah, really we really appreciate their, their support. So you talked a bit about some of the things that are community-level community level projects that will protect low-lying roads and prevent some flooding. But you also touched on the fact that, especially in Provincetown, people own the buildings. They own the seawall. It is not possible for the town to step in. Mm -hmm. What are the things that will help people make the changes they need to make? And I ask this because it's expensive. It's very expensive. I mean, I can see it's at least six figures in some cases to, to put our building up three feet. But insuring against flooding is still relatively very inexpensive, even though the costs are going up compared to lifting your building. How does that tension resolve? I think that is, I, I think the short answer is, I don't know. Okay. That's really, that's, yeah. that's one of the things that really keeps me up at night and okay. that I, I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that the federal funding of FEMA has been so complicated with the increased risks from climate change. I don't know what these programs will eventually look like. Yeah. But there are there have been opportunities where uh, some coastal communities have gotten a federal grant to help uh, several neighbors ah, okay. elevate. Mm -hmm. You usually have to have a certain critical mass mm -hmm. so that the cost-benefit analysis makes sense. Mm -hmm. There is still a lot of legwork that private property owners have to do. In that okay. case, they have to get their plans, their engineering plans to a certain stage. All that has to be done by the private property owner. Okay. The grant program is incredibly complicated. And I know that in towns that have done it, it has required an additional staff person just to manage the program. Right. So I think that's something we will learn more about from our consultant in the, okay. in the RFP process. Mm -hmm. But that is, I think that's something that I'm hoping FEMA makes more accessible in mm -hmm. the future, lowers some of the bureaucratic hurdles that you have to jump through to accomplish that kind of project. Is there anything individuals could do? Hate to go back to calling your representatives, but is there something that coastal communities like Provincetown, individual, if we call and say, hey, we are concerned about this, and can you put some pressure on FEMA in some way or in through appropriations? Can you set up different pots of money for coastal towns. Is that something to advocate for? I think it is. I think it is. And that's something we're going to be considering going forward is how can we engage our hmm. congressional delegation. But really where we're having more luck is at the state level. And our delegation, uh, Senator Sear and Representative Peake have been huge champions hmm. and have been incredibly helpful in getting money for Provincetown. Uh, if that's on the scale to elevate an entire neighborhood, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But what we are looking at is uh, ways to elevate roadways, for mm -hmm. example. Um, okay. So it sounds like if I have to back up and try to see where we are in the world of dealing with climate change here, it sounds like there's been a lot of good work and investment from the town, the region, and the state in really understanding and being able to identify the kinds of things that we need to do mm -hmm. 
you want to take that to the next level this year in really getting into the specifics for Provincetown about what has to be done and where. And that is the step that needs to happen before taking these projects to the state or to the federal government to raise the money to do this. So it sounds like we've done the initial planning and now we're getting the nuts and bolts planning. And the hope is that some of these things are ready for funding by 2025. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the, the, the focus will be on essentially where do we need to be in 2035, 2050, mm-hmm. 2100. Got it. And this plan isn't going to last through 2100. It will need to be tweaked, but yeah. we need to keep our eye on those longer term issues. How is our water and sewer infrastructure going to be mm-hmm. impacted with rising sea levels and groundwater? Yeah. How do we kayak to the... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. This year, it really is where the rubber meets the road, because whatever the planning has happened this year, this is what's going to tee up the actual construction that starts happening. Right. So it sounds like this is a great year for interested residents to make sure they're paying attention. And you had mentioned the ability to attend these meetings on a, you said twice a month? Uh, Every other month. Every other month. Sorry, I got that wrong. Where else can people make sure they stay up to date? Because this is not a small deal. This is mm. not a small fix in one part of town. This is looking at everything from the airport to the parking lot. It could be that when regulations change or the construction starts, people who haven't really been paying attention might be surprised. There might be some feeling of pushback. So how do you encourage people to get involved now as the planning is going forward? Mm. I would say, first of all, the, the town's coastal resilience website will be updated when, when we do get a consultant on board okay, for our right. various public forums. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned to the town's website for the meetings of the Coastal Resilience Advisory Committee for mm-hmm. the public forums they will be holding. Our next is January 31st, okay, which is a Wednesday, 5 o'clock, in the Judge Welsh room here at Town Hall. Not all of them. We're, we're trying to pick to pick topics of discussion. Not all of them will necessarily have a central focus. Some Mm -hmm. might just be informative. Here's where we are. And of course, as we get going with the consultant, there will be updates done by the committee to the community on where we stand. That's great. That's really great. As we wrap up, what else do people need to know about your work here, the work of the, the different boards in trying to deal with the climate crisis? I think what people should know is the town is engaged. We, we see this for the crisis that it is. We have a lot of ideas and we need some public input to really help us with prioritizing some of those. That's great. So what's your favorite thing about living in Provincetown? Oh, I, I live out in Beach Point and every day on my drive to work. It's I so beautiful. Just, yeah, it's I so am beautiful. so grateful for it. Yeah. yeah. And the community too. It's just, I have just found a great home here. And mm. our the people who I interact with, not just in a professional level, but my friends here, mm. it's just a real special place. Yeah, it really is. It's just gorgeous. And thank you for all the work that you're putting in to keep, thank you. <laughs> to keep us above water. <laughs> thank you. It's so interesting to imagine what Provincetown will look like if people, what will it look like 15, 20 years from now if people have had to do the vertical retreat? And that's part of what the Coastal Resilience Plan wants to wants to look at. It's mm. how do we preserve our historic character mm. while also accommodating this kind of structural elevation. Yeah. And the Cape Cod Commission has been instrumental in developing design guidelines for historic areas on Cape Cod. 
for what an elevated building could look like. Mm -hmm. But perhaps it is that we elevate our homes and then the town later comes in and elevates the roads right. to meet the grade, to meet the new right. grade. But that's a lot of earth to move. That's and that's something that we want our consultant, our cultural resilience consultant to work through. Is that really a feasible alternative? Mm. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. But very reassuring that you and so many others are working on yeah. it. Thank you so much. <laughs> one, really one thing I'd it. add is just that mm -hmm. as, as a closing thought is that Provincetown has a lot of grit historically. We've had to adapt quite a bit. Our fishing village moved from Long Point to Provincetown and they floated homes over. Mm -hmm. Every generation, Provincetown changes and adapts a little bit. So it might be that Provincetown of the future doesn't quite look this, the same as it does now, which is something we might need to we might need to consider. But I just think of the old adage that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think the next iteration of Provincetown might not look exactly the way it does now, but it's really the community that makes that is that constant. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Great. Jim. I really appreciate this. Thank this you. has been a wonderful conversation. Thank oh, me you. too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tim Femulari for his time and sharing his knowledge. And I look forward to seeing many of you at the committee meetings over this coming year. If you want to share the show, the link is available on the WOMR website under podcasts. Thanks so much.